This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. folks, and welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional. I'm your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast was, like most creative processes, birthed from a combination of a several cups of coffees and honestly, even more questions posed by a series of impassioned graduate students that I've had the pleasure of supervising over the last several years. First Bite's mission It's to answer those questions that we've all had, but we've either been too afraid to ask or we didn't have the subject matter expert saved to our own personal speed dials. So do you too have more questions and answers when it comes to treating your medically complex and fragile pediatric patients? Are you unsure if the signs and symptoms that you're observing are indicative of an allergy, maybe an underlying GI issues, or could they possibly be neurologically driven? How many questions do you really have for that registered dietitian regarding the formulas prescribed and the flow rate through that patient's G-tube? Have you ever been consulted for a quote-unquote difficult latch only to find out that the mother is exclusively breastfeeding, but you've never nursed a little one or worked with the breastfed patient before? And what about functional communication? Are you so over flashcards, but you need advice on how to get started with core vocabulary with a non-speech-generating device or how to find the right fit for a speech-generating device? Do you have additional worries about the basic day-to-day running and documentation of your private practice? How do you go about obtaining referrals or even documenting that note so that the insurance company deems it medically necessary? If you answered yes, well, then come join me, Michelle Dawson, for this dynamic podcast presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Who am I, you ask? Well, I'm a self-described SLP geek with, as my family says, a touch of the ADD and ADHD. I have a passion for serving the least of these, namely the most complex and involved pediatric patients in their natural environment through my private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in the Columbia, South Carolina metro area. I also have had the pleasure, and currently still am, traveling the country where I lecture on best practices for pediatric dysphagia and functional language acquisition delivered through an early intervention natural environment model. Are you still intrigued? Then come join me as I interview some amazing folks. And don't forget that you can submit questions for a Q&A or interview request topics to me via email at firstbite at speechtherapypd.com or on our Facebook page. And also check out our website, drop a review, subscribe to obtain those coveted ASHA CEUs. All right, folks, let's get right to it. Welcome back to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional Resources for the Pediatric Clinician. I am your host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. The topic of today falls in the Fed category, 
and I am once again joined by the amazing Miss Erin Forward, our temporarily upstate South Carolina gal by way of Rochester, New York, who we officially claim as a Cola Town Palmetto State gal now. Woo! Woo! As I mentioned, I'm really happy. As I mentioned in episode four and every fourth episode since then, this pod course is possible because of a seed she planted and a journey she has joined me on. So thank you, Erin. In this episode, Erin and I will be tackling the conundrum that I think all early intervention SLPs have faced at least one point in time in their professional careers. Challenging. It's confusing. It's frustrating. What is the functional evidence-based strategies and How is it that the strategies that we use to treat adult dysphagia seem to fall by the wayside when we treat our pediatric patients? Also, we have a tendency to often check our clinical hats when critically assessing our pediatric patients and instead focus on the symptoms, or we can insert the word, the feeding aversions, without actually completing a root cause analysis and helping the patient's family get to the true source of their oropharyngeal dysphagia or the medical etiology as to what's going on with these kids and why they won't eat and why they can't eat and why they have trouble swallowing. Well, today we aim to fix that while providing a list of some of our favorite resources that we have used to grow as professionals. So on that note, Erin, what have you been up to since graduation? So I have officially started working as an early intervention home health therapist. Yay! So very exciting. I'm now a real adult. <laughs> yes. How's, how are those first rounds of bills and those first licensure application fees? Yeah. You know, we're, we're just, we're jumping in there. It's, it'll, it'll work out. <laughs> That's okay. You're no longer a graduate student. You might be able to afford to eat now. <laughs> just yeah. all, all of the graduate students that are listening are like, yeah, payday. What are we going to do? And then the dollar menu happened. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. So we have a lot of ground to cover, um, and um, this one's, I'm not going to lie, folks, this is a a hard one. Um, I am fully prepared for numerous rotten tomatoes to be thrown my way, Um, but um, I think if we share the evidence um, and we provide the resources and people go at it with an open mind, um, we have the opportunity to make a huge positive impact. So um, if you if you think I'm totally bonkers, don't worry. Some days I do too. Um, feel free to email me firstbite at speechtherapypd.com. <laughs> and on that note, take it away, Erin. <laughs> so um, I think we're going to just jump right in there because, you know, why not sugarcoat anything? We'll just, we'll just start going. <laughs> um, so I think the first thing we want to talk about is the importance of etiology of disease when treating a child with an oral pharyngeal dysphagia and also looking at how a bleed is different than just an immature acquisition. Okay. All right. So <clears throat> we, nine times out of 10, we get a referral that just says eval and treat, right? I have a um, pediatrician that regularly sends me kiddos and the eval says eval and treat um, aphasia. And they're like a six week or an eight week old. And I'm like, all right, we're going to work on like anomia at this stage of the game. Um, you know, a little bit of 
room for improvement. But with that, because we work in the world of early intervention, we typically do not get access to the medical records. I mean, I've had, and in my live lectures, I I talk about it. I've had an experience where a nurse felt that because I did home-based services, I did not need to have access to the medical records. And that was um, really frustrating because it almost cost a kid their life. I mean, it didn't. Um, That's a conversation for another day, but true story. Um, The downside of all of that scenario is that we don't get a full picture as to what's going on with the kids. So from day one, when you get the script in, you should be requesting medical records, hospital discharge statements, most recent um, uh, pediatrician visit to try to understand what's going on. The second factor of that is, and we've talked about it in other lectures, is the importance of referrals. And I think we have one coming up in a couple of weeks where it's, we're just tackling referrals. Um, we have to fully understand what it is that we are looking at. Um, you and I were actually talking earlier today and the kid was that you were working with was just suspected to have a delay and you went in and you saw <clears throat> hemiparesis and a whole bunch of other things. And you were like, this clearly looks like a stroke. This clearly looks like a, ble- a bleed. And that's, that's critical because a lot of times, um, you know, I got one on my caseload right now where, Three years old, quote unquote, typically developing status post congenital heart defect repair, status post um, uh, submucous cleft VPI repair, um, very small for stature, and that was it. Otherwise, brilliant child. But I'm watching this kid, and when we're working on our k- g sounds, which folks, let me tell you, I'm not a great phonology therapist. There are better ones out there than me. But when we're working on our sounds, you know, we're like crawling all over the ground. I watch if this kid's laying on his back, he has to roll laterally to get up. He looks like a turtle. And then I was noticing how when he turns, when he goes to turn, his neck moves in, neck, head, and shoulder move in unison as if he can't deviate from midline. And he was, quote unquote, a picky eater. Well, I pushed because I am a squeaky wheel And after we found a neurologist who was willing to listen to concerns posed by family and by yours truly, um, one MRI of head, neck, and spine later, kid has a C2, C3 posterior fusion, as well as an L8 spina bifida occluda. And that changes the kid's stars. It makes sense why he has to move his head, neck, and shoulder in unison because the C2, C3 were fused suspectedly in utero or shortly thereafter. And it's beginning to make sense why he's a picky eater and he doesn't like incredibly viscous foods. And, you know, we've got a swallow study coming, but it was easier for that kid, for me to get that one kid into a neurologist than it was to get a swallow study because I'm not a pediatrician (laughs) because, you know... Fair enough, as you would say. But that vital bit of information changes how I'm going to proceed. I've got another little girl on my caseload that I've worked with for about two years that came to me with swallow fatigue. And again, we've said it before, I do not think swallow fatigue is a thing. I think the entire system fatigues, head, neck, shoulder, 
um, head neck juncture. It's based off your diaphragm. If you built your house on sand, it's going to slip, build that house on rocks. And if a baby's core is shot, they're not going to be able to sit upright. They're not going to have the prerequisites for cup drinking or, you know, taking a spoon to their mouth. Um, so for that kiddo, we listened to the symptoms again, sent that baby directly to neurology, directly requested an MRI based off of what we found, and come to find out the child had um, a super rare condition that meant um, the center of their cellabellum was absence. And, you know, now it makes sense why we're having athetoid movements, why it takes so long to group onto a bottle or breast or all of those stages. But those etiologies we would not have found out about had individuals and or a very squeaky SLP not pushed. And that is so, so vital because don't you know that changes my plan of care comparative to a kid where I suspect GERD or I suspect um, fetal alcohol syndrome. You have to have all of your pieces together. And if you rule out all the big, bad, and ugly, then you can proceed with, okay, then this is just a delay of language skills or a delay of feeding skills. And are those skills just delayed because, and I've seen other cases where the skills were delayed because the families were afraid to introduce a new food because they were fearful of choking or families didn't know that, you know, the kids nine months old, they should be starting purees and, you know, table foods because they're, you know, several states away from all of their immediate family and they just don't have their village to educate them and to guide them in that process. I mean, we have lost the luxury of living with our grandparents and growing up with our grandparents. And I know I say that with the grace deserve that topic because you and I were both We are products of our grandmothers, and that's a beautiful thing. And But having our grandmothers there to give the wisdom to our mothers shaped who we are and how we progressed. And how many of the patients that you see simply don't have that wisdom and hands-on around them. So knowing etiology versus an environmental delay that changes. Also on the bleed comment, I really sometimes think wholeheartedly that we call a grade four bleed a grade four bleed because saying the child had a um, hemorrhagic CVA is very um, difficult um, for a family member or parent to hear. So sometimes I think it's just the way it's presented. And some parents don't realize, and you and I have seen it, the kiddo, okay, well, mom, they had a grade three bleed. Okay. And they're like, yep. And I'm like, honey, that's a stroke. And they're like, wait, what? And I'm like, yeah. Like, and if you just say stroke, then the parents are like, oh, snap. And then, then it all comes together. But yeah, that was a really long winded answer. Is that what you were looking for? (laughs) I think that you can go in very easily with a referral for language or a referral for feeding and think that treat it like a delay and but when you think about a delay in reality they should develop these things in the same pattern 
as a child that's typical. They're just a little behind. But when you have a child and understanding their ideology is so important because they may develop a little bit differently. If you have a child that had a CVA period, like during pregnancy, right after pregnancy, at any point, that's going to affect how they develop language and feeding because certain parts of their brain might no longer where language was might move to a different part of their brain. Yes. Yes. They may compensate in other ways. And yeah, neuroplasticity is definitely a thing, but like, and every article you read about perinatal stroke will tell you a different thing, but that's because we don't understand it as much as we need to. Mm-hmm. You, you, you and I had this conversation. What was it Friday while we were out like kicking it? Yeah, I say just, kicking just it. Typical <laughs> car conversation. <laughs> this is what we drive around having a conversation about: st- strokes, language delay, reminding my three-year-old not to pick his nose and eat it. You know, just the basics. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. Yes. I had a thought and then I lost it thinking about reminding Theodore not to eat his boogers. And I'm very pleased, folks, to announce that he has managed to make it two weeks at school without eating his boogers. So we are on the uptick. That's a mom win. (laughs) That's a mom win. Yes. Now we get him to stop picking it in the first place. Next mom win. Okay. All right. Keep on trucking, baby. (laughs) Um, What was I going to say, too? There's also, like, I think... When you look at etiology, it allows you to kind of step out of your own box and understanding like, okay, you had this kid that had a C1, C2 fused, you're understanding it's affecting their feeding and their development, and it forces you to kind of look at them more holistically when you understand what like the baseline etiology is. Yes. And that's where stepping out, yes, right there. That's when you say, okay, well, I got to get OT and PT in on this because there's nothing that I can do to fix that. And that is crux. We are speech pathologists, effusion, um, torticollis. I mean, he, it was like torticollis, but it wasn't like a typical presentation of torticollis. But that's just one example. A lot of times, folks, we are brought in at the beginning because it's a NICU charge with feeding. Like I have one tomorrow that's a stat breastfeeding consult. Okay, so I'm going to go and I'm going to do my thing. But they're just anticipating it needing to be an SLP. We can be the avenue and the door opener to get the other disciplines in so that we can treat the kid holistically. And if you haven't done it yet, reach out to a peds OT, reach out to a peds physical therapist and try to set up a a co-treatment with them because... I'm telling you what, you find a really good OTPT that can help you on positioning and core strength. You are going to, those kids that get treated across disciplines are going to make so much more progress. And I truly think nine times out of 10, it's because you're treating the core and everything is built from there up. But yeah, you, you were agreed. Yeah. No, I learned yes, so much spot from, on, friend. from OTs and PTs. I feel like it like, there's all these things that you don't realize are affecting their feeding, especially. And then they make one change with their positioning and you're like, Oh, that was the problem. Okay. Mm -hmm. The feet, 
It's always the feet. I always forget about the feet. They have to have pressure through the feet. It seems so obvious, but mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah. that fixed the strider. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. My job's done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Little surgery from the EMT strider con. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And ah. so to kind of jump into looking at treating on um, a huge question. How is treating a pediatric patient with oral pharyngeal dysplasia different than treating an adult patient with dysplasia? Okay. As if we can really answer that in the amount of time that we have. But I know. I was just about to say, all right, big deep breath and pace for exhalation. All I can hear is Charlie saying, speak slowly. (laughs) Okay. All right. So, um, so very, very, very different. And I'm going to answer it with a call to action. Okay. So number one, if you are listening and you are not, um, and you're, and you're a speech pathologist and you are not a member of ASHA SIG 13, folks spend $25 and become a member of ASHA SIG 13. Why? Well, regular journal articles, how often do we read them? Never. Why? Because they use really big words. And I suck at pronouncing multisyllabic words because let's be honest, when there's that many consonant and vowels, my little redneck English just busts me and I cannot pronounce it correctly. Okay. Sometimes I can't even say pronounce correctly, but the ASHA SIG 13 articles are completely functional. I read an article, um, Oy vey. Two weeks ago on the way on the way to Rochester when I was going to visit um, up there to lecture and, um, you know, I saw your your home, your hometown. Baby. It was beautiful. Great place Great to place. all the folks in Rochester. <laughs> whoop, whoop. Um, also, the food was really good. But while I was on the winter. Yes, I can understand that fried cheese thing that I had. I, I don't know how to pronounce it with sounding without sounding inappropriate, but it was it was delicious. Um, okay. There was an article that I read on the way there and I'm going to quote it. It was pediatric dysphagia rehabilitation, considering the evidence to support common strategies. It was, um, SIG 13 volume two, part one, um, 2017. Um, so it came out last year in this article, two clinical researchers went through one from, um, 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 it's Goza. Um, and if you're listening, I'm sorry, I'm butchering your name from University of Alabama and um, Dodrell, Dodrell from Brigham Women's Hospital NICU in Boston. Um, they went through and actually analyzed the evidence out there. And the bottom line is, yeah, there's not much, which is horrifying. But we already know that, which is why there's so many little like myths that pop up for treating kids. And one of the things that they said, um, hold on, let me find it. Um, Okay, straight up, I'm going to read it, page 32. As mentioned previously, many of the rehabilitative strategies for oropharyngeal dysphagia pioneered in adult populations are not able to be implemented with the pediatric population due to physical and cognitive immaturity of infants and children particularly the case for many pharyngeal phase interventions, which require awareness of swallow process to implement learned strategies, i.e. superglottic swallow, the shaker, or those kind of things. What's that to say? We know we need to do actual strengthening exercises. 
and be very careful. I am not talking about non-speech oral motor exercises. I am talking about core strength and strengthening the extrinsic laryngeal musculature. Okay. The things that the OTs and the PTs know all about. And what they say is, okay, the kids can't do it. So what are we supposed to do? Well, for a while there, people were doing um, neuromuscular electrical stimulation um, on peds. So putting the little electrodes on their necks and trying to zap, 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 which I'm totally butchering this, but you know what I'm saying, right? And um, when these two lovely ladies went through and did the research, um, they concluded that non or wait, neuromuscular electrical stimulation did not improve swallow functioning because they did an analysis on another when they were like going through all the evidence and they pulled it out. They said, no, well, that one doesn't work. Okay. Well, then what about um, um, when we're doing um, oral phase rehab? Okay. So insert oral phase rehab. What does that look like? Unfortunately, that's a whole lot of non-speech oral motor exercises. So when we're rubbing their faces to wake up their faces, baby, we don't wake up an adult's face. So why would we wake up a tiny human's face? I don't know. But what they what they recommend, and this is profound, this should this should really kind of frame everything that we do. It should be considered that as clinicians are applying oral phase rehabilitative intervention programs focused on improving feeding and swallowing abilities, they are also, perhaps unintentionally, providing concomitant sensory stimulation to other developing sensory systems, including the auditory, vestibular, visual, and olfactory systems. We don't know what we're doing. We can actually be causing damage. We can be impeding reflexes and growth of other components. And that's that's not something to take in lightly. If you start vibrating an individual, you might want to, one, rule out that they do not currently have a seizure disorder that you are unaware of. Two, that their disease or etiology, and this is why it's important to know that etiology is not prone to a seizure disorder, and you never quite know when it's going to happen. I have one little girl I've worked with for 10 months. Her um, diagnosis was known for having an increased risk of seizure disorder. She passed, I'm air quoting here, um, an EEG in June and EEG in July. Nobody saw anything. And then Friday night, it was it. She was at her daycare on a Friday afternoon and in came the big seizure. And you don't know when it's going to happen. You don't you always don't know, know when it the, is happening. Yes, exactly. They could look so to the right we, and you're like, oh, okay. And then their mom is like, oh, they just had a seizure. Yes, Exactly. And we don't know that because we're not neurologists, because we're not occupational therapists focusing on vestibular input and um, correct uh, development of um, (laughs) the competencies behind um, sensory therapy, like actual treatment of a sensory processing disorder. We are not equipped for because we're not them. That's why we should work with them. But All of that to say, we have evidence out there for treating adults, and we have very limited evidence out there for treating um, pediatrics. And some of the evidence that we do have, some of the recommendations that we do have come from folks like 
um, the food chaining authors, where they say in their text, we should be ruling out X, Y, and Z and working collaboratively with X, Y, and Z. Because what we have is insufficient. We don't know what we don't know. But proceed with caution when um, you're going to implement your exercises and just make sure that you're doing it in conjunction with OT and PT. Also, there's a really good article. It came out of, um, it was um, not Melconian de Mattia. Um, it will come to me in a little bit, but it was done by a couple of um folks from across the pond in OT, PT, SLP in Ireland. And they did the bouncing of the ball thing where they did a baseline swallow study, did um, they put the baby on the ball. And have you seen when the OTs and the PTs put the baby on the ball and they bounce them one way and then sideways and then they like Superman them and it looks like they're going to like bobblehead right off. Um, They did that for so many weeks and then did a repeat swallow study. And the kids that were bounced and worked on core strength as in conjunction with like, um, trialing new foods and pacing and all the traditional speech pathology stuff, the children that were, for lack of a better explanation, bounced dramatically improved over the children that were not bounced. And that was in an ASHA SIG from 2016. Um, ASHA SIG 13 from 2016. And I'll remember the name. It will come to me before the end of today. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. That was that was another long-winded answer. It's okay. But we, yes. We've gone on many tangents with these. <laughs> But okay, I have a few things. One, okay. think about like you have to think about the why of everything. Like I, I feel that I've seen some feeding therapy where people aren't able to tell me why they're working on something, and and you you need to understand like what this is doing for them, what this is doing for their muscles, but also in peds they're still developing, like they're still developing these pathways. If they're delayed, they're developing them later. And also if they've had like a brain bleed, they may be developing them differently, but this is a process where it's like you have an adult that had a stroke, like that nerve might be damaged and there's a lot less neuroplasticity. So you're kind of having to like rebuild that little part of the train track where like impedes their train track is still fully together. It's just not as strong and it can't hold like as heavy of a train. So you're trying to build it up. Whereas like with an adult, you're trying to fix that one part. And also a swallow is like a pulley system. So it's, I feel like a lot of it is kind of involuntary and the rest of your body is helping to activate that. Like the whole system in general, it's like a bunch of tubes with air pressure. So to me, it, it doesn't make as much sense when you're shocking those muscles because you can't time that pulley to perfectly shock it to activate that muscle if that's what you're trying to do. Okay. One, the pulley system quote. Girl, I am borrowing that. That is that is bloody so far, brilliant. I'll give, I'll give credit to my uh, supervisor at the ho- uh, Children's Hospital in Greenville. She, she really, um, that really made me think about it differently. No. The one in the NICU? Uh, she's in. She's on the floor mostly, but yeah, she's been in the NICU. She's great. On on the floor in the NICU, folks, just so you know, we have pegged that lovely lady down, the original author of The Pulley, for a future podcast. So, yay! <laughs> okay, all right. But that makes me think of central pattern generators. Okay. All right. So 
I know you, you were going to go there, but I'm going to go ahead and go there really quick for one second, and then we'll go back to the there. Okay. okay does that yes. make sense? I follow you. Everybody's like, I have no idea. You follow me. Yes. You speak, Michelle Land. Okay. All right. So there's this exercise that I need you guys to do and envision. I want you to have, and, and we got the train tracks, okay? Your, you have central pattern generators that run through your brain stem or up to your brain stem. And they terminate there. Your brainstem acts like a bouncer to a lot of your central pattern generators. It goes thus far and very limited information goes beyond your brainstem. Um, why? Because our basic life functions are housed in our brainstem. But we know this without already knowing that we know this. Okay. Who here, who has listened, who has done a or treated a patient that had a brainstem CVA or if they've had a tumor? If you've ever worked with a patient that had a lesion or an infarct there, they are the most absolute difficult to get PO. Why? Because your central pattern generators are hosed. Okay. So hang with me. You have a CPG for suck, for mastication, for swallowing, for respiration, and babbling. There are more, but those are the ones that we're going to talk about. They emerge in parallel adjacent to each other on this train tracks. But they don't really talk to each other. With the exception of mastication and swallowing talk to each other and swallowing and respiration talk to each other. But mastication does not talk to the respiration CPG. And that's crux. Why? Because of the way we engage um, when we're doing our, our therapeutic inter- interventions. Okay. So if you teach a chew or an isolation, um, teach a chew in isolation. So if you just teach a chew without any actual bolus manipulation or bolus control, then all you've done is improve the mastication component of the central pattern generator, but you have not taught the mastication CPG to engage with swallowing, to engage with respiration. Okay. So you teach a chew, 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 chew. And then all of a sudden you give a kid a larger bolus. They chew, chew, chew. They don't know how to control that large bolus because they haven't practiced chewing and controlling the bolus. The bolus gets away from them. They have premature spillage. They have an episode of penetration, maybe an episode of aspiration. Why? Because the swallowing and mastication component haven't communicated. Therefore, the swallowing and respiration component haven't communicated. So the airway is left wide open below. Okay. The body does not know that the bolus is incoming and that it needs to, um, prep for closure. Okay. But we know that without knowing that we know that because think about it, what do our instrumental exams, when do we typically find the patient aspirated on the instrumental exam? It's because when they have premature spillage of the bolus, um, and on large bite sip sizes or successive sucks, They've overloaded the pulley system, as you would say, Miss Aaron. They've overloaded it. Okay. So, understanding the baseline etiology do they have a hemiparesis due to a bleed? Do they have um, a fusion? Do they have um, a degenerative um, uh, disease? And some of our kids do. Like, I've had a couple that have rare demyelinating genetic diseases. Understanding that etiology helps us shape what resources to provide for them. So there's that. 
That's why I don't do certain things in my own personal practice. Okay. Um, speaking of that, um, do you utilize chewy tubes and vibrating objects in your personal practice? And do you bring food into the patient's homes? Well, no, and no. But did I? Yes. I used to be the queen of fun food planning and bringing in little crafty artsy food activities into patients' houses until a mom was like, yeah, but their older sister's like kind of majorly deathly allergic to that. And I'm like, oh, snap, didn't think about that. And then um, I one time um, left my lunch in the car and it was my lunch, thank the Lord. And I left my lunch in the car and I went out to it and definitely had lost my yogurt (laughs) and was like, oh my gosh, what if I was going to bring that to a patient's house? And like, it just, you know, I mean, it's South Carolina. It's hotter than Hades down here in the summertime. Like you can use all the ice packs and you still will have a hot lunch three hours after it's been in your car because we, Town is also known as the armpit of the state, give or take who you talk to. But like the air just doesn't move. All right. But no, I don't bring food into patients' homes. Um, so let's start with that one. Cause that one's easy. Uh, one of my newest, um, evidence-based triangle justifications behind that is because I read this lovely book, 12 molecules that changed the course of history, also known as Napoleon's 10 buttons. It sounds really dry. And I promise when they actually go through like the chemical structure of the molecule, yeah, that part's dry, but then they talk about like what that molecule has done in history. That's amazing. And I can follow that there. But they talk about, and Aaron, I'm going to need your help with the word. It's the capsaicin, capricion. It's the, the heat spice. It's a flavor. Oh, um, Am I saying that? I don't think you're saying it right, but I don't, I forget. I don't want to butcher it too. But you know. Yeah. Okay. Some, somebody that actually cooks knows the spice that I'm talking about, but caps, I think it's something like cap. Capsation or capsation yeah, or something like this. We'll practice it for yeah. later. How about yeah. that? <laughs> okay. What they did was they convinced a whole bunch of women that were pregnant and going into labor to take a pill filled with this spice. Okay. So then after the baby is born, they actually dissect the placenta and they find that spice present on the molecular level. Okay. When you're pregnant, they tell you like nothing crosses that blood barrier into the placenta. That's wrong, dude. That is a molecular level level of wrongness, okay? Our babies in utero are bathed in what we put into our bodies, including the foods that we eat. There is a reason I have a son that loves cheeseburgers and a son that loves fresh fruit. There's a reason I gained 45 pounds with one son and 30 pounds with the other. Guess which son is bigger to this day, okay? We know, you're laughing. I seriously have the biggest three-year-old in the history of three-year-olds. Thank you, Rosewood Dairy Bar cheeseburgers. Whoop, whoop. Um, shameless plug for cheeseburgers across the nation. Okay, so... That being said, I don't bring the foods in the home because I don't cook the way that those mothers cooked or ate when they were pregnant. And you need to play off of what these kids are literally hardwired for from utero. Okay. Um, And I don't do chewy tubes and I don't vibrate babies' faces. I remember the day I had a baby girl with a rare genetic condition. Bless her heart. She passed away a couple years ago. And she was sitting in a beanbag chair and I was telling the mom with my 
strawberry-shaped teething vibrator that I had to wake her face up so that we could start PO trials. And I'm vibrating her face. And Erin, she had a seizure disorder. Like I screwed up on so many levels on this, but I had seen my supervisor, my mentor do this. I thought this was what best practice was. And the mom was like, so what are you doing? I was like, I have to wake her face up. And she was like, so why? And I literally sat back and I was like, because that's what we're supposed to do. But I could not quantify it beyond that. And so then I started researching it and then I stopped doing it because I couldn't find anything to actually support it. And with respect to chewy tubes, I have one exception to the rule. My exception to the rule is if you have a child that has self-injurious behaviors, then by all means, yes, if they are going to bite for the rationale that they want to bite something or they don't understand and they're just biting, like say they're stuck in that basic bite reflex and it's become like a perseveration, then I'll give them a chewy tube just so that they don't hurt themselves and or peers, loved ones, family members, but not to actually improve mastication because I want them to learn how to chew and control the bolus that comes when they bite into something. So if I want to do that, then I teach them to chew on by increasing the viscosity of the food. Say that they're only taking a super thin puree. Well, then I'll bump it up to a stage two puree or a stage three puree, or I'll add in oatmeal and I'll check with the registered dietitian or the pediatrician or the NP or whoever it is to find out, can we add oatmeal or rice cereal or what ancient grain can we use? Because, you know, there's like all the fancy cool ones now, right? But there's a way to go about improving a chew pattern by increasing the food. And I love those silicone net feeders. Let's all agree the fabric net feeders, just you can never get it clean enough and you just have to wash it away as a mom, like throw it away. Like you can't get the banana out. I remember one of the labels are like, gently brush this with like a toothbrush. And then like after Goose had demolished a half a banana and I couldn't get like the brown banana goo out, I was like, and I'm done and I'm out. Like that's disgusting. But the silicone ones... Those are super easy to clean, even for my exhausted mommy world self. I mean, how many of you out there are also moms with like a full-time job and like a full-time job when you get home? Why do you think we do this so late at night, ladies and gentlemen? It's because I can put the children to bed and hope and pray they go to bed at eight. (laughs) Doesn't always happen. Sometimes there's comedic interludes on my end. But if I put the food... And I pick out which food after talking to RD or just gut instinct or what the parent's preference is. Like I'll put like a big avocado in there or like it's the South, honey. I will bust out some Bruce's sweet yams and shove that in a nut feeder because we like our yams. Um, Get a little sweet potato going. And when the babies bite into it or the toddler bites into it and a bolus comes out and you can control the bolus by how much you put in there, or if it's like one of those net feeders that you have to like squeeze down into the nipple, it, it teaches them how to bite and then chew and, um, manipulate the bolus. So you're integrating mastication with the swallowing CPG and telling the body to prep because once that bolus hits that posterior pharyngeal wall, it's involuntary but you've engaged all upstream systems to tell downstream, move, cover, protect, do all concrete seven stages to have successful respiration. And those are the kind of things that that's my 
philosophy and my thought process. Okay. Now, how did I get there? Because I am super nerdy and I have taken so many courses and read so much stuff. And Aaron, you are like well on your way to like that level of like geeking. <laughs> okay. But get in your toolbox, get food chaining, pick it up, purchase it, read it, live by it. Um, uh, get on Ash's website and read their position statements on early intervention SLPs, um, the focus on the natural environments, because if we're actually practicing least restrictive environment and natural environment, you will start only utilizing what's available in the home. And my goodness, if they don't have food in that home, then it is on you to be a good citizen and to reach out to that early interventionist and set up um, and utilize the safety networks available in your immediate community to get food into that home. Because we've been there. We've seen the homes that don't have that. Um, also, you know, I love this person and he does not know that I have fangirled him for years, but Dr. James Coyle from the University of Pittsburgh, I want to meet him. I want to shake his hand. I want to tell him, thank you for making our world of speech pathology a better place. He has so I once breathed his Did air. Did you really? I'm so jealous. <laughs> that's all I can say. I just, I breathed, breathed his, his air. air. I know, but like, that's amazing. Oh, okay. He's really that cool. They're like, who is this guy that these two women are geeking out about? He has amazing resources on medical management and explanations of dysphagia. Yeah, they're geared for adults. He busts a lot of myths. Yes, also. he does. Like the myth behind like watery eyes equating to dysphagia. No, it equates to nasal regurgitation. He can take apart a bedside swallow in a hospital. I would, I want to, I want to get, we, we need to interview him. So if you know a body who knows a body, I, I want to pick his brain. <laughs> I do actually. Are you serious? I did go, I did go there. I know. Yeah. Okay. I'll see what I Pull can Pull a do. string. <laughs> I'll try. Okay, make the pulley system work. <laughs> okay, yes. All right, so, but check that out. Also, drugs and dysphagia. I met that sweet man, um, Peter Carl Johnson. I met him at Flasha when a kid pulled the fire alarm in the middle of my lecture at a hotel resort, and I helped him down a flight, not the kid, but Mr. Johnson down a flight of stairs because, you know, the, the um, what are those things called? The escalators were out. And He's the author of Drugs and Dysphagia. Like that's mm-hmm. his whole book. And he's got a new book out yet. And I don't remember the name of the new book. I Forgive me. I don't remember the name of it. His whole book talks about how certain medications can induce dysphagia. Well, we already know this. We know how you get a little old lady and she gets a urinary tract infection and goes cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, right? My grandmother has done it a couple right. times. Yes, they temporarily get a dysphagia because of the severity of the infections and the medications that treat it. We know that they all, but if they heal, they typically make a really awesome comeback, just like my grandma. Okay. But for the children, seizure disorders, those are cranial nerve suppressants. They can cause xerostoma. They can cause gingival hyperplasia. They can cause increase in drooling. They can cause sedation. They can increase appetite, decrease appetite, all of those things. So we don't know that unless we actually open up and dig into the literature. So drugs can cause dysphagia even in our infants, children, and infants, toddlers, children, and adolescents. So those are some of my like, okay, those are some of my favorite resources, but 
Yeah, that's that's a really impassioned answer. Also, please pull the string. It's okay. Pull the string. I'll, I'll try. I'll try my best. I'll see what okay. I can do. Cool. You know, <laughs> Pitt's, Pitt's great, so yeah. I still keep in touch. I'm so jealous you went to Pitt. That's amazing. So for, like, going off of that and for people that aren't lucky enough to be able to, like, call a mentor like I call you on the daily just to talk about random things that I read about. Like what are some additional resources that you use clinically in your decision making? Um, first and foremost, the thing that you just said is a clinical resource calling you calling me. I have learned so much by taking students and I'm a better clinician because I've been a clinical supervisor And y'all, you in particular, have asked very hard questions, and that's brilliant because when you ask the questions, it makes me clinically, critically assess my rationale and my answer, and it makes me hit the books. So step one, if you are a SLP, you've been out and you've had your C's for a few years, give back and become a clinical supervisor. Trust me, you are going to learn so very much from the students asking you questions. Two, um, okay, so I have some favorite ones. First, Feeding Matters, which is new. I just um, sort of found out about Feeding Matters pretty recently. It's it's a non-for-profit. It's based out of the Midwest. Um, I actually have their pen right here. Feeding Matters, It's um, and it was started by a mom, I think, of a set of triplets who couldn't find... <clears throat> a skilled clinician to treat her kids. And so they put out family free family training videos on feeding aversions. And um, I'm, I'm not doing it justice on feeding aversions and um, orpharyngeal dysphagia and tube feeds. They have so many parent resources and like professional resources that are just readily available right there on their website. Yeah. That's um, and you can find a clinician in your area that they have vetted and like so if you're an OT and you need an SLP or you need like an RD or something like that like they have them listed on their website, which is that's cool. Yeah, I forgot about the professional resources because I always get on there for parent resources. Good catch. I really like feedingtubeawareness.org. That's a really good website if you have a tubey baby. The ASHA community app. Y'all, ASHA, ASHA has an app for that, which kind of cracks me up just saying it. And on there, hold on, I got to put my readers on. <laughs> the squares are so tiny on my phone. Okay, where is it? The ASHA community app. If you are a member of one of the SIGs, you can for free post a question in the ASHA community app and the greats in our field will answer your question. Diane Barr gets on here and answer questions. I mean, she, I love her book because it does one of the best explanations of typical PO. And in order to treat atypical, you need to be able to define and explain typical. She does a phenomenal job explaining typical acquisition. And at the back of her book, she has a breakdown for risk factors for an oropharyngeal dysphagia, for cerebral palsy, for autism, kids with Down syndrome, and then like a chapter dedicated to like other etiologies. You know, I think she's got a new book out, but I apologize. I haven't read the new book yet, but I, I love her first book. Uh, Catherine Shaker does a lot on NICU and where I don't think 
I mean, it's not really applicable to me because I don't treat NICU. It is still applicable in the sense that I need to know what these kids have been through before me and what's the common methods there. But that kind of helps me grow. Joan Arvidson, I mean, she's like the godmother of pediatric dysphagia. She's like our Jerry Logerman. I mean, Jerry Logerman is the godmother of like dysphagia, but like Joan Arvidson is like that even more so to the Pete's world. And that's phenomenal. Y'all, there's the ASHA practice portal. And I know I've talked about it before, but like it's free and there's a free birth to six months and six months and up pediatric dysphagia eval on there for free. So if you feel like you're stuck in a rut or you got a case that you can't crack, like, I mean, you can, it gives you the breakdown and even takes into like consideration, like respiration, cardiac, kidney function, um, signs and symptoms that they would need to see like an endocrinologist or questions to ask if they're seeing an endocrinologist. Like it's, 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 it's wordy. It's like a 20 page document, but like it gives you really, really, really good information. Contact people. I feel like, I feel like our profession is really great about even the big names, like answering emails. If you have a question, I think like, and then there's certain people that I like really love and will read a bunch of their articles. Like I think Aaron Ross is really great in reading a bunch of her stuff, but I think, and this is coming from someone who like just started. So, I mean, I don't have that much credibility, but I think it's important to like follow these people and learn from them, but also like don't take everything that they say and assume that it applies to everything or that it's going to work for you or that it's like the be all end all. Cause we have so much more research to do. And I think it's important to like think critically, even with these people that know so much more than we do, you still, your thought process is still valuable and you can't just copy what they're doing or like assume that it's going to apply to like this patient. Absolutely. 110% correct. I had an SLP mentor me a couple years out and she told me every single kid should be paced by placing the nipple in the lower left corner of the mouth instead of pulling a bottle out um, to teach pacing. Um, Because if you take the bottle out, they have to work harder to regroup. Yes, but no. Um, Putting it in the lower corner or tipping it up into the palate. Yeah, that may work for some kids, but what about your kids that are obligatory mouth breathers because they've got hypertrophy of the adenoids or enlarged palatine tonsils? So what about your kids that have severe laryngomalacia or trachomalacia and they're struggling to get maximal air in? If that bottle is still in there, it's occluding the, the bulk of the airflow in and they've got decreased oxygen that's, that's crucial to get that bottle, but you are 110% correct. Trust, but verify. Otherwise it won't grow. Yep. Yeah. Trust, but verify. One last really quick thing that's cool. The neurodevelopmental treatment association, which I know it's like mostly OTs, but I really somehow want to figure out how to get like a speech certification for that. They have like documents of research articles from like the past 10 years that they summarize and like a, few paragraphs so that like you kind of get the gist of it and then you can go back if you want to like read the whole article but it gives you just a baseline of like this is what this article is about and there's perhaps to be like 
at least 50 or so articles that they just summarize every like few years, which is really cool. Um, Random. um I actually know two SLPs who are NDT certified. I met one in Syracuse about two weeks ago and she, you would have freaking loved her. She's like, goals. I want to grow up and be that lovely lady that like I, that was sitting in, in, in the room. Um, also she had amazing hair. Like I love the salt and pepper. It was fabulous, but she was NDT certified. Um, and you can, they have a full blown, you are eligible for NDT certification as well as they have a specialty, like, um, it's not the full cert, but it's like one step below gear just for SLPs. And while you're doing that, y'all seriously consider getting your CLC certification. That's on my bucket list. And um, because we do get kids that have had struggles breastfeeding um, and we that's a perfect outgrowth of what we're doing. And then my last thing that I would recommend is that we be pursuing and following up with the um, board certified specialty licensure and swallowing because they now have, um, information unique just for peds. Um, but they also have a really cool cranial nerve and innervation class that you can take. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think we should do that one together. I'm just saying. I agree. I I agree. That would be a fun one. Oh my goodness. One day I'm going to have more pocket money and not spending it on classes. And I'm so glad they're tax deduction. (laughs) Okay. Oh, I'm so grateful for the Mr. Dawson. Just saying. (laughs) Okay. All right. On that note. My friend, we have five minutes for Q&A and I feel like we should have saved a little bit more time for Q&A. But um, is there anything that we should get in here before we switch over to questions? I don't think so. We'd go on another long tangent if we tried. (laughs) We would. Hi, Faye. All right. What is it that you and I are covering in depth the next time we come back? Let me scroll down. Referrals. Referrals. Yes. Chasing the swallow. That should include all the referrals. I knew the referrals were all. I love that one. Okay. All right. So we are covering referrals on October 23rd, right before Halloween. Ooh, la, la. Um, And uh, hold the line for questions. And for everybody who's not hanging out for the next round or for the round of questions, thank y'all for being here. And if you do have questions, um, please feel free to email me um, firstbite at speechtherapypd.com. Um, if I don't know the answer to it, um, I will gladly connect you to somebody that um, uh, knows and, and can help guide, shape, and build. Because as Aaron perfectly stated, we're in a profession of helpers, and I would love to help. So, um, Aaron, as always, thank you, baby. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember... Feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.